Welcome, everyone, to a brand new edition of Learn About World Cuisine, the show that takes you on a culinary tour around the world. Today is a special edition. We are with the 196flavors.com website. Uh, I have the owner and proprietor, Mike, on the phone. This episode will teach you about world cuisine from the 196flavors.com website. So let's talk to Mike. Mike, tell us about the history of the website, how it got started, and what you are all about. Sure. Thank you so much, Kidding, for having me on the show. We really, really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I'll tell you how we, how we got started with 196 flavors. So uh, it really started about eight years ago. Um, I have always had a passion for food. As you can probably hear already in a few seconds, I'm originally from Paris, France. I'm not American, but I have been living in the U.S. for 22 years. And when I moved here in, in the U.S., I, I was by myself, and I love to cook, I love to eat. But I started to cook more and more because I love to entertain, and I was by myself. So my passion for food and for cooking really took off when I moved here about 20 years ago. And over the years, you know, I... I love dining out and I love discovering new food. So I was, you know, dining out with friends and I always love to come back home and replicate the dishes that I, you know, discovered when, uh, in my outings. So fast forward to 2011, 2012, um, I was pretty active on Facebook and especially on a group uh, that was a pretty large recipe sharing group and um, like with a few thousand members. And I started to get noticed because it was actually uh, mostly for women, and I was one of the very, very few guys who was active. So I started to get noticed with uh, the kind of dishes and recipes that I was um, sharing, and I became you know, virtual friends with quite a few of, of those women, and um, especially two of them uh, that became closer friends. What happened is... Uh, in 2012, so I live in the U.S., I live in Los Angeles, and my parents um, and my family live in Paris. My mother was actually dying, and I had to go back to France um, on a short notice. And some people from the group actually started to, to find out about me coming to Paris. And what they did is, even though I had never met any of them um, in the real world, I only knew them virtually, uh, what they did is they did some kind of a chain um, to come and visit us at the hospital for the two weeks that my mother was actually dying. And even when she passed away after that, when um, being Jewish, we have something called Shiva, and for one week we were not supposed to cook or anything. So all of these women who I have never met in person actually came to our house and um, came with meals for all, all of our family for lunch, for dinner. And one of these people was actually Vera, uh, who, again, I met for the first time in real life at that time, kind of a, a bittersweet um, moment and memories. Uh, and we became close because, again, we share the same passion for cooking. Uh, she has way more experience than I, I do, to be honest. She studied way earlier than I, I, I did. Um, so she's pretty technical. I never really trained as a chef, but really, really good. And we, we really became closer and closer. Um, I, came, I went back to the U.S. She lives in, in Paris. We stayed in touch. And six months later, um, I, I called her and I'm like, listen, I have this crazy idea. I would like us to start a blog and to cook one recipe from every country in the world. So at the time, it was nothing more than a fun project between two friends to, you know, 
weekend and share it with our other friends. Um, we did finish the first project in a year and a half. So we went through the 196 countries in a round with one recipe, one recipe at a time. And like I said, at the time, it was nothing more than a fun project. So we were not as thorough in our research. It was really more like a personal blog project. Uh, but over time, we decided to make it a little more professional and we kind of steered away from the blog format to really morphed, morphed more into an encyclopedia or Wikipedia uh, where we document and research all the recipes, traditional and authentic recipes from every single country in the world. So on the website, you will never find any creation, any personal creation, but that's not the, the goal of the, uh, of the website. The goal of the website is really to document those um, traditional recipes. Some of them are newer, some of them are centuries or, or more old. And what we're doing is we are not only sharing an authentic representation of the recipe, but we are also talking about the history, about the, the recipe, how it got created, how, you know, who created it in some cases, how it has evolved, um, the different versions of the recipe, depending on the regions or the countries. So there's a lot of research behind every single article that we publish um, and very thorough process. And now it's not just the two of us. Uh, for the past few years, we have started to work with contributors. So we have a team of about 10 contributors uh, who regularly uh, contribute content to our site. So they actually like us. Um, and they're very passionate about food and about uh, international cuisine like us. Uh, but also uh, what they do is they actually do execute those recipes that we uh, share with them. And they uh, research those uh, recipes and they write uh, for us. So, um, you know, it, it has become some kind of a small venture, if you will, with um, not only those contributors, but also with experts. And that's really what differentiates us, I think, compared to all these websites out there. Because it's becoming more and more difficult with this information overload on the internet to find who is really saying the truth and who is really credible enough that you can go uh, go to the website and really find an authentic representation of a recipe. There's really a ton of information out there, and you never know. And I have a dumb question. Uh, 196 flavors represents the amount of countries around the world, correct? That's correct, yeah. Oh, wow. All right, let's talk about some fun stuff. So, basically, you have a recipe for every country in the world on your website. Uh, let's talk about some fun stuff. What are some of the most unique and unusual dishes that have been featured? There's quite a few of them because, uh, if, as you can expect, you know, every country is going to have different ingredients, different spices, and so on. Um, but there's been some, you know, real interesting discoveries. Uh, there's a few that come to mind. Uh, one is uh, a couple actually from, from Burma or from Myanmar um, in Southeast Asia. One, which is a fermented tea leaf salad. So they actually make a, a salad, a cold salad, with tea leaves that they ferment for one or two days, and it becomes this, um, you know, believe it or not, a salad of edible tea leaves, uh, which is mixed typically with um, fried shallots or with um, shrimp uh, paste um, in and sometimes like tomatoes, so you can really make a salad out of it. It's delicious. It's really, really good with fish sauce 
fish sauce as well, which is a um, pretty common ingredient in Southeast Asia. Um, and it's pretty delicious. Uh, another one actually from, from Myanmar, which was an interesting discovery, is chickpea tofu. So everybody knows about tofu, which is typically made with soybeans. Uh, this version of tofu, which is great for people who are vegan or gluten-free, um, is made with chickpea flour and can be can easily be made at home and you don't really need much, you just need chickpea flour and and, uh, and water and some salt and you can make your own uh, chickpea tofu that again is going to uh, can be made more or less firm and then you can use it the same way you would use tofu and you know in salads um, and, and so on interesting discovery one discovery as well is everybody knows about mongolian barbecue especially in the u.s Believe it or not, what people think of Mongolian barbecue is has absolutely nothing to do with Mongolia. Mongolia. <laughs> so it, it was actually invented by a Chinese actor, <laughs> and um, it's more Chinese than Mongolian, but I don't know why people call it Mongolian barbecue. There's a story behind it. But we do have a recipe for the real deal, for the real Mongolian barbecue, which is actually And this is actually prepared with stones. So I made it, usually it's made on an open fire um, in, uh, in Mongolia, but I made it obviously at home on my barbecue in a pressure cooker, uh, not pressurized, I didn't take any risk, <laughs> but uh, um, you actually cook the, the meat and the veggies in a pot where you actually put stones. And the reason for that is when they put the stones, they put stones that are piping hot and it allows the ingredients to really cook from the inside as opposed to just you know the heat coming from the outside of the pot the heat is also um, provided by the stones inside the pot so it's pretty unique it's more like a technique uh cooking technique more so than i mean the dish itself to be honest like, there's nothing special to it there's not that many spices but it's more like the technique that was kind of unique um i thought and pretty interesting Okay, so basically this is a special edition of Learn About World Cuisine. We are here with Mike from the 196flavors.com website. Just to sum up, 196 flavors is because they have a recipe from every country in the entire world, and there are 196 countries. Uh, we just talked to Mike about what the most uh, unusual dish uh, dishes are on the site. Uh, basically, this show is to is for our people that love to home cook because you can go to 196flavors.com, and if you want to spice up your week, you can look at a, a, a recipe from another of uh, uh, from one of the 196 countries. Hey, Mike, what recipes are the most popular on your site? So it's just interesting to uh, to think about you know what makes a, a recipe popular. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to look at what people are looking at on our site, but most of the time they're going to find us by doing a Google search. So if we happen to rank pretty well for specific recipes, obviously those recipes are going to be, you know, become more popular, quote-unquote. Uh, so there's a few that actually have become popular um, over the years. And one thing I should be faced um, with is the fact that, and I forgot to mention it, but our site is actually in three different languages. It's available not only in English, but also in French and in Spanish. And as of today, we have actually more than 1,100 recipes available on the website from the 196 countries that you mentioned, Kevin. So 
depending on the, the language, uh, there's going to be recipes that are going to be popular, you know, um, depending on the language. So in English, one of our most popular recipes is actually a Persian recipe called Homme Fadzi, which is a pretty popular dish over there. It's um, Iranian cuisine, Persian cuisine is very known for two things, stews and kebabs. And home sabzi is actually one of the stews. Uh, home sabzi is actually made with a combination of five or six herbs that are so fenugreek, cilantro, parsley, uh, chive, and so on. And, and, and there's variations, you know, depending on the region or, or the cook. And you actually saute those herbs, um, you know, for about 30 minutes to an hour until a lot of the water evaporates. And then you use that base, um, herb base, to make a stew out of it. Uh, so you typically add beef and uh, red kidney beans and uh, an, an ingredient called limo amani. Limo amani is nothing more than a dried lime, which is very used in Persian cuisine and also in the countries around Iran. And um, you simmer it for a couple hours, and then you serve it on the rice, which is going to be a staple starch in, uh, in Iran. Uh, very, very delicious dish. I actually became familiar with that dish uh, when I moved here in the, in the U.S. because Los Angeles is known to have the largest Persian community in the world at the Tehran. Uh, so that's one of our most popular dishes. Some of the others that, um, that are popular is the pan de sal. Pan de sal is actually uh, kind of a bread roll, one of the, actually the most famous bread roll in the Philippines. Um, not very unique. I mean, it's a typical bread roll with, with salt and the salad means salt bread. Um, and another one is kaupun, uh, which is uh, probably the most popular soup in um, in Laos and um, also known in the north, in northern Thailand. Um, and like I said, you know, depending on the on the the language, we might have different popular recipes. In French, for example, our most popular recipe. And the, the, the most well-ranked is actually minestrone, the, the Italian soup. And especially, you're going to have seasonal effects as well, right? So for the past month or two, uh, minestrone has become more and more popular because we're coming in the, in the winter months wow. in, the, in, the, in the northern hemisphere, of course. <laughs> and let me ask you a logistical question. You're cooking recipes from all over the world. You have to have some issues with finding the uh, ingredients. Is that right? It's very rare when we really cannot source an ingredient. Um, we, I'm lucky enough to live in Los Angeles. Vera is lucky enough to live in Paris. So those are pretty big cities with a pretty good representation of different communities. So you have access to local markets for most cuisines. And if we can really cannot find an ingredient, there is always the internet, and you can find pretty much everything on the internet. It's very rare when I cannot source an ingredient. I can think of maybe a couple occasions when um, I had to source it from you know somewhere else, uh, or I could not even find it online. Uh, actually, one that comes to mind is so I'm French. I was born in Paris, but my parents are from North Africa. And I was actually raised on my mother's side of the family, who is from Tunisia. And there's a, a dish called Mluchia. Uh And Mluchia is also very known in uh, Egypt as well as in Levantine cuisine. Um, Mluchia is actually the, the Arabic name for uh, a plant, which in English is called Jew's mallow. And this plant is very, it, when you cook it, it's kind of gooey. 
a little bit like uh, where when you cook okra, you know, it, it, it's kind of a little slimy and, and, and gooey. So this plant is similar to that in the texture. But uh, the way that the Egyptians cook it is as a soup with the actual fresh or frozen leaves. That is some, you know, somewhat easy to find in the U.S., depending on the city, uh, in a frozen format. However, in Tunisia, we have a similar dish, also called mulchia, but it's very different. It's actually made with the dried version of ground leaves. So you, you dry the leaves, ten leaves, you dry them, you grind them, and you can make some kind of a powder with it, which is um, very dark. Um, this powder is almost impossible to find <laughs> in the U.S. I tried to import it. Um, I, I just could not find uh, any, anywhere to, um, to source it. So I brought it back from France because you can find it in France and in a few other countries. So there's a few ingredients I use that are very specific, maybe, maybe used for one or two recipes that are just maybe difficult to find. But for the most part, whether it's spices or you know, ingredients, I think at the end of the day, what you'll see is after 1,100 recipes, one thing I have discovered is for most recipes, they're gonna they're gonna use the you know ninety percent of the ingredients are gonna be common and fairly easy to find. It's really more about the cooking technique, the the combination of spices, some combination of ingredients um, that are unique. But at the end of the day, a chicken is a chicken. <laughs> so <laughs> a chicken in the U.S. is similar to a chicken in Africa or in Asia. It's what you make out of it which is gonna be different. All right, Mike. Now let's ask a question that I'm sure all the listeners are wanting to know. What is the one dish that you never heard of because you're cooking from every country around the world that you tasted and you said, wow, that is delicious? So there's quite a few of those. It's kind of hard to pick like uh, one or two, but um, I was not that familiar with Peruvian cuisine, for example. And that's one of the cuisines that I really discovered and that uh, I really, really like. And there's a dish that I'm making very regularly now, which is called lomo saltado, uh, so sauteed beef. And it's very interesting because, as, as some of you may know, Peruvian has a fairly large um, community of Asians, especially Japanese and Chinese. And there is a cuisine within Peruvian cuisine which is some kind of a fusion cuisine that um, you know, appeared in the last century, which is called uh, Shufa cuisine. And that cuisine is actually a, a fusion of Chinese and Peruvian. Lomo saltado is one of those, probably the most popular dish in that cuisine. And it's really a fusion dish between this Chinese insurance and this Peruvian insurance. So what it is, it's actually sauteed beef, typically sirloin, uh, which is stir-fried with uh, onion and tomatoes, uh, kind of quartered, and um, with soy sauce. So the meat is actually, uh, prior to that, it's marinated in uh, a marinade that includes soy sauce and other ingredients. Uh, so all of this is stir-fried. But the interesting thing is, after you're done with the stir-fry, you actually add and incorporate uh, french fries. So Peru, Peru is actually known as um, the land of potatoes. They have more than 2,000 species of potatoes. This is kind of where the area where they originated. And they make a lot of use of potatoes in traditional Peruvian cuisine. Okay, now you're cooking from every country in the world. There's got to be some stinkers. Talk about some of the ones you did not like. <laughs> 
I'm going to make some enemies now. Um, so, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, there are some dishes that I really like um, and some cuisine. So, I think it's, it has more to do with our Western palate and the fact that we may not be familiar or our palate is not really accustomed to some, um, you know, combinations of ingredients and so on. I'm saying that so that I don't make that many enemies before, right? Um, West African cuisine is, is very unique, it's very different. And it's probably one of those cuisines that is the least known in the Western world. Every, you know, more and more people know about Japanese, about Southeast Asian, about... that uh, African cuisine is not that popular globally. And, and we put it on the map. I mean, we, we do have experts from that region, and we, we really try to put it on the map. As a matter of fact, about four or five years ago, for about a couple of years, I, I was hosting cooking classes uh, locally here in Los Angeles. And the first cuisine that I chose was actually West African cuisine because I'm like, nobody knows about that cuisine, and I really want to put it on the map. And I had a friend of mine from, the, from Senegal helping me hosting it, and it was fun and very popular. But she's uh, from that region. So, for example, they, they love to combine... Um, like surf and turf. I know it's, it's known here in the U.S. and it's quite popular, but what they do is they typically use smoked fish and meat and, and combine it in a lot of dishes. They also make a lot of use of peanut butter or groundnut butter. I think this is more personal. I hate peanut butter. <laughs> this is one of the very few ingredients that I really don't like. You know, I'm not American and I was not raised on PB&J, so I don't like peanut butter. My kids love it. I'm not a big fan how about that and this is for our home cooks i mean you can go if you're a home cook and you want to try some new stuff you can go to 196flavors.com and you can find a recipe to just jazz up your week do something different um let's talk about the history of certain dishes uh mike uh, this show is recorded in Philadelphia, but uh, we have a huge audience in India. Uh, India is actually our top-rated uh, country. Uh, do you have any favorite Indian dishes? So, believe it or not, Indian cuisine is actually my favorite cuisine by far, by far. Um, and it, it has always been, uh, even way before the, um, the, the the birth of the 196 favorites. So, I am fairly familiar with India. I've, I've been there a couple of times. Um, I, what I love about this cuisine is it's very diverse. It's a, it's a huge country. I mean, it, it is a continent. Uh, I think 1.2 billion people live there. Um, it, it is a huge country. So obviously every state is going to have different uh, flavors, different ways of preparing food and so on. Um, and I have a lot of dishes that are my favorites in Indian cuisine. One probably that comes to mind is because one of my favorite um, vegetable or fruit is eggplant, and uh, they have a dish called bengen barca, which is, uh, you know, in English term, maybe an eggplant curry, because everything is a curry over there, right, for us Westerners. Um, and, um, and that's kind of the dish I probably always take when I go to an Indian restaurant, because this is, this is how I'm going to rate the Indian restaurant, pretty much. So I'm going to take that dish, and I'm going to, you know, compare it um, across restaurants. Another one that I, I get as well is biryani, uh, which is a, a dish. So typically, in the, uh, Indian dishes are, are served with rice a lot of times, uh, but biryani is a dish with rice. So it is 
the, the dish itself is actually made with rice and with a combination of spices, uh, dried fruits or nuts, and, uh, and meat, some, you know, chicken or, or lamb, or obviously there are vege- vegetarian versions as well. And what I love, what I love about Indian cuisine is that it's it, it caters to vegan, vegetarian, pretty much covers all the diets. Uh, you know what I mean in one cuisine. Uh, let's talk about the history since we're in Philadelphia. Believe it or not, our audience in India is double the amount of the U.S. Uh, but uh, let's talk about the history of the Philly cheesesteak. What do you know about it? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's. Um it's hard when you, you know you work with 1100 recipes to remember that every single history about the, the um, you know every dish that the Philly steak was actually created in the 30s and I, I'm probably not teaching you that Kevin but it was um, it was created in the 30s by uh, Pat and Harry Olivieri and but the interesting thing about about it and and I think there's been wars local wars about who created it and who has the most popular. Um, like a lot of those dishes, um, you know, that were created by restaurants and, and so on. But the interesting thing about it that um, I thought was um, was kind of weird is that the, the initial uh, version of it did not actually include cheese. Yeah. It only came a few years later. Um, so now it's actually a staple, not only in Philly, but across the nation. Um, and everybody knows about it. Uh, but yeah, cheese actually came later. That's, that's fascinating. And... Uh... We're going to go into the history of some foods, and then we're going to move on. I just wanted to do the history of a couple other things. Uh, what do you know about the history of uh, falafel? So, falafel is one of those um, dishes and recipes. And you know, I was speaking about wars just a few seconds ago. It's one of those dishes where that originated like thousands of years ago, and one thing I should say is when you go to the website, every recipe is going to be attributed to one country. So in the title itself, you're going to see, for example, for falafel, we attributed it to Egypt. And sometimes we get a lot of nasty feedback and comments because they're like, oh, it's not really from Egypt, it's from this and all that. The problem with that is some of those recipes were created at a time when some of those countries did not exist. So what we know about the world and the geopolitics today in 2020 is very different from like 100 years ago or a thousand years ago. So having said that, a lot of the recipes, especially in the Middle East, when you talk about Levantine cuisine, and I'm not saying Lebanese, I'm saying Levantine, because Levantine cuisine, if you want to attribute it to different countries today, it would maybe include Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, um, Jordan, and so on. Um, so with Falafel, the, one of the reasons why we attributed it to Egypt is because the ancestor of Falafel, so everybody knows that Falafel is actually made with chickpeas, with different spices, and it's both delicious uh, fried um, bowls of chickpeas um, that you can use in with pita bread, with different uh, salads and so on. But the ancestor of Falafel was actually made with fava beans, or broad beans, as they're called in the U.S., and this ancestor of falafel is called Tamiya. And Tamiya is mostly, uh, I mean, from our research, was actually originated in Egypt, uh, although it is also familiar in other countries uh, across the, um, the Middle East. And you can get this all on the 196flavors.com website, right? 
you go into the history and the recipes uh, together? Absolutely. So, and actually, how we we got into it because we started to research and really get passionate about the, the history behind all these recipes that you know all of us know, but none of us really know where where and how they originated. We spend a lot of time talking about the, the history behind the food. And what's and that's great because we have a lot of food historians uh, that I personally know that would love that. So you can learn history along with learning uh, new things to cook. So this is fantastic. Uh, let's go into the history of banh mi. So banh mi is, um, so I don't know if anybody knows about banh mi, but banh mi is a very popular uh, Vietnamese sandwich. And, um, you know, the same way that I talked about Korean cuisine earlier and I talked about the insurance of immigration on the cuisine, um, we can see that in a lot of cuisines and a lot of countries. In Vietnam, um, there are different insurances, but the, one of the most recent is the French insurance, um, with, uh, because Vietnam used to be a French colony and um, up until last century. So banh mi was, is not really a very old recipe, uh, like like sure uh, that we can talk about the, uh, the, uh, the other very popular um, Vietnamese dish. But banh mi was actually, uh, when you think about it, it's a sandwich that is made with um, a bread that is very similar to baguette or even baguette, uh, that is that typically includes some kind of meat, so either pork or, or chicken, uh, pickled uh, pickled vegetables, and some fresh herbs, you know, to be basil or, or cilantro and so on. Um, and this is a typical example of an, another um, in, uh, insurance dish that, in, that was insurance either by immigration or, in that case, um, columns like trench and um, a combination of you know, uh, specific ingredients, baguettes being the, the French insurance and the rest of the ingredients and the herbs being the, uh, the Southeast insurance, Southeast Asian insurance. And let me ask you a question, Mike. Uh, this, ep- uh, this show has all, uh, had a show about China and China cuisine, and we found out that a lot of Chinese food is Americanized and that a lot of people who are authentically from China would not even recognize an American Chinese uh, menu. A lot of it was originated in San Francisco's Chinatown. What do you know about that? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few of those that um, if you go to China, you would probably either not see them or you would find them in another uh, another version. Um, and in 14 cookies were, were invented here in, uh, in California. And as you said, um, the... Um, a lot of them originated in San Francisco, being probably one of the having one of the largest uh, Chinese population in the, in the U.S. Um, and some of them became popular more here, even though they originated in China. Uh, some of them actually became popular here. Uh, Kung Pao chicken is is one example. Uh, interesting about Kung Pao chicken is it, it did originate in China. It was actually named after a, a governor in uh, in the 1800s. Uh, but it's it's funny because this dish actually lost its popularity during the, uh, the Cultural Revolution with Mao Zedong. And over there, they actually renamed the dish as just, obviously, in Chinese, something called fast-fried chicken cubes. Uh, in Chinese, I think it's, I'm, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's Hong Bao Jiling. Um, and because it made reference to um, a governor from, you know, before the revolution, but um, in the, I think it was in the 80s, 
this uh, dish uh, reclaimed its original name uh, with uh, the reforms of Deng uh, Xiaoping, and uh, and then it became the dish that we know now, in, uh, in even in the U.S. I and mean, it's the dish that is popular around the world. Um, but it's interesting also because the uh, the yeah some of those dishes are you know have even though they have lost their popularity, they they've been around for like in this case 200 years. So it's not. Uh, it's a dish that is here to stay. Uh, you know, are, it might become less and more popular depending on the on the period of time, uh, especially what I mentioned about China. But it's a dish that's here to stay. And uh, what do you know about Italian food? We did an Italy show that's our one of our highest rated shows, and we talked about Italian cuisine, and we found out that a lot of the popularity of Italian food, spaghetti, etc., came from. Uh, after World War II, when the guys came back from overseas, uh, what do you know about Italian food and how it was Americanized? Yeah, same thing. You know, when we talk about Chinese, there's obviously been a, a large um, immigration of, of Italians to the U.S. and um, with some that have uh, get the name, some that have evolved. Uh, you know, it's um, we have one recipe, for example, that's. What I think we say, Tafazul, with the uh, Sicilian um, pronunciation, uh, but it's a dish of pasta and beans that is that did originate in Sicily and in Italy, uh, but that has evolved um, over time with the uh, the New York uh, influence. And uh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how it has evolved, but I know that the dish as it's known now is not exactly the dish. Uh, the way it, it was made originally in, uh, in Sicily. Exactly. They don't do a lot of things that Americans do in Italy, in Italy, uh, to the Italian food. It's actually, I believe, the meatballs are never served with the pasta, etc. Okay. Um, served over pasta. I mean, it's a, it's a different, separate dish over there. And let's talk about this. This is one thing that blew me away, Mike. I found out uh, that one of the most popular delivery items from the third-party delivery services such as Grubhub is burritos. And I, that kind of shocked me. Uh, let's talk about burritos. Yeah, so burritos is even, it's one of those items, you know, when we talk about, we talk about Chinese, we talk about Italian cuisine. Um, Tex-Mex is actually a cuisine that is, a kind of a fusion cuisine, right? I mean, obviously it has Mexican insurance, but there's a lot of dishes that originated in Texas or, you know, the, the surrounding states that are not known in, the, in Mexico or were changed in Mexico. Burrito was actually, or did originate in Mexico, in, in Chihuahua, in the Chihuahua state, actually, uh, and it was actually during the um, uh, Mexican Revolution in the early 1900s. The reason why it's called burrito for the people who speak Spanish on, uh, on, on the... Um, on the line is um, it's a little donkey, and the reason why it's called a little donkey is because at the time of uh, the merchant who invent, invented it, uh, whose name is Juan Mendez, actually was looking for a way to carry the, the meals in in an easy way for the workers and to carry them and to sell them and to carry them uh, on the little donkey. So he um, found a way to you know wrap the meat with and. With beans or cheese or meat inside, and uh, he looking for a name. He actually called it Little Donkey because he was actually carrying those meals, those little burritos, on his little donkey. 
That is fascinating. And once again, we're talking to the 196flavors.com. Not only can you learn recipes from 196 uh, countries around the world, plus he has 1,100 recipes, which is impressive enough, but you can also learn the history. So we're just dabbling into the history of foods. Uh, My favorite history uh, lesson he has written down here was that the green bean casserole was created by the Campbell Soup Company. It was done to boost their sales of canned mushroom soup in the early 50s. But we also learned on our Thanksgiving show that the TV dinner was created because they bought too many turkeys for Thanksgiving and they needed to figure out something to do with it. So what do you know about those types of things? I heard, uh, once again, I heard that Chef Boyardee, Actually, was a real chef, and he would send his customers home with uh, meatballs and sauce, and uh, that became a industry leader. What do you know about those interesting things about American food? Yeah, so in, in the U.S., you know, with the uh, with the advent of TV and in the fifties and so on, um, more and more people were were not having the traditional dinners around the table, and there was. Um, there was a lot of effort by the CPD companies to find ways to boost their sales. You mentioned about the green bean casserole and, uh, and the Campbell's soup, the cream of mushroom um, uh, canned soup, which is interesting because now in 2020, even in 2020, 50% of the sales of this cream of mushroom soup uh, is actually used for to make green bean casserole, oh, believe it wow. or not. So people, people don't even like to have uh, to... Um, in the soup, they actually use it to make recipes. But at the same time, there's quite a few CPG companies that, um, again, were looking for ways to uh, boost the sales of specific products and create recipes uh, that would use those products. One example is the, the spinach and artichoke dip that everybody knows about that you find at the, on the menu of most American restaurants here. Um, but this, this is a, um, a recipe that originated also in the 50s, again, as a way to find recipes that were easy to eat in front of the TV, on the couch, um, you know, and there's a lot of dips that were actually invented at that time to facilitate this kind of new way of eating that did not require any utensils that could be eaten pretty easily in front of the TV. Uh, and CBG companies like uh, Lay's especially helped push this trend. Um, and there's other companies that were that actually contributed to the success of a dish like the spinach and artichoke dip, uh, like Calmans and Miracle Whip, because uh, some of the recipes include mayonnaise, uh, Daisy and Nutrient for the sour cream, and Philadelphia for the cream cheese. So all of these um, brands and, reci- and CPG companies actually helped boost this kind of recipes because they, they did include uh, a version of the recipe on their package. Uh, so people would buy those ingredients mostly to make those recipes. And I want to encourage everyone to go to the website because we have covered a lot of this stuff on our show. And like Flamin' Hot Cheetos was created by the janitor. You know what I mean? There's a lot of very interesting stories about especially American food and how it was created that will blow your mind. And you can learn all that on the 196flavors.com website. Let's move on, Mike, and let's talk about what are some of the most weird things you've discovered, weird facts. Uh, in terms of? In terms of recipes. Recipes? 
Um, so we took it upstairs, you know, some, some others. Like, there's a couple others that I thought were pretty unique. Um, one is, once, actually, early on, we made a fish head soup from Singapore, uh, which was very, uh, very interesting. There's an interesting story behind it, more like a personal story, because um, I was in Paris at the time visiting, and we, I made it with my, a couple friends. And uh, we went to maybe three or four different uh, markets just to find a big, a couple of big fish heads uh, to make the soup. Uh, which, depending where you live, and even in the U.S., uh, believe it or not, it's not as easy to find. A lot of of uh, stores actually throw away <laughs> the fish heads because yeah. nobody wants to buy them. But I know where to go. I have my you know go-to places in Los Angeles where I know I, I will be able to find those. Um, but yeah, especially in the U.S. or uh, other Western countries, it's not as easy to find. There's another one which is interesting, again, not unique in terms of the ingredients, but again, uh, more about the, the, the technique, is something called omurice, which is a Japanese uh, recipe. It's actually a very thin omelette, which is rolled and which is stuffed with a rice mixture. Uh, again, nothing special in terms of the ingredients themselves. It's more about the cooking technique. I mean, I have never seen uh, the combination of an omelette and rice, especially in a raw format uh, presented like this. It's pretty unique, pretty interesting. Um, again, not like unique ingredients, but more like the unique uh, method of, of preparing it. And the reason we're going into the history of food is because you can find that right on the 196flavors.com website. Not only if you're a home cook can you learn different recipes from around the world, 1,100 is an impressive number of recipes, but you can also learn the history of food. Our show dabbles into the history of food, and uh, it is some fascinating things. Uh, what about sangria? Let's talk about sangria. Yeah, so sangria, everybody knows about sangria. It's a combination of wine and fruits and um sometimes some um, uh, sparkling water or, or seltzer. But it's, um, the name itself, I don't know if people know, but it actually comes from a Spanish word that means bleeding or bloodletting uh, because, obviously, of the bright red color in the uh, the most popular sangria, which is made with red wine. Um, there's um, the, the beverage has existed for centuries. It's, um, it's actually it was introduced by the, uh, the Romans in Spain, about uh, 200 years before our era. And uh, there's different var- variants of the um, of the sangria. So I talked about the original one, which is the most popular with red wine. Uh, there's one that I love, and every time I go to Spain or even in the Mediterranean, they serve it. Uh, if you ask for, the, for a, a quinto de verano, uh, it's, really, it's, really, sorry, it's really just wine. And what they call gaseosa. Gaseosa is uh, some kind of a seltzer or soda water. Um, also very easy to make, you know, you're not going to, obviously you're not going to use the best wine for us, but for us, but, uh, oh. if you have a cheap wine, a table wine, and you want to have like a, a fresh summer drink, it's actually really good. Another one that um, is good is something called uh, Karigai, which is wine, but this, in this case you add it uh, with lemon or orange soda, so it could be a, a Fanta uh, type uh, again, you use a cheap wine and you make a summer drink out of it. One which is extremely popular is uh, called Calimocho, which is wine and Coca-Cola. I'm not a big fan of this one, to be honest, but again, a very popular one. There are some weird stories on our website and some um, 
stories that are kind of this era uh, with, as you can imagine, there's a lot of recipes of the centuries that uh, were named in a weird way, and in 2020, they would never be named that way. I mean, with the whole um, politically correct, um, you know, <laughs> uh, mood right now, and the fact that you, you have to be extremely careful about how you name, you know, football teams or anything or even recipes. Uh, there's an interesting recipe, which is a version of sangria, which is known in the northwest of Spain during the Holy Week, and it is called Matar Matar Judios, which in Spanish means kill Jews. <laughs> it would not be sold well right now. <laughs> Let's talk about pastrami. We're going to do a couple more of these, then we're going to wrap it up, Mike. Uh, we're in our 45th minute. Um, let's just do one more. Uh, what about uh, pastrami? So pastrami is, is interesting. It's actually, um, uh, so when you talk about the 1,100 recipes that we have on our website, most of them can be made pretty quickly, you know, from 10 minutes to two, two, three, four hours. Pastrami is one of the longest, the one that took me the longest time to make. It took me actually 10 times because I wanted to make it from scratch. Um, so there were seven days of brining, three days of drying, um, about 14 hours of smoking. And when you're done with smoking, uh, then you steam it for two hours because, you know, it's going to be too dry and you have to rehydrate it. The end result is out of this world. So I would, even if it's a lengthy process, which you can actually shorten because I, st I wanted to make it from scratch, making my own corn beef and so on, but you can buy your own corn beef and shorten it to that just a couple of days. Wow. Everybody knows about Stasrami, obviously from the New York dailies and, and so on, but obviously the, the um, origins, you have to go to the, um, the area of Romania, and what is known today as Moldavia, Moldova and uh, Ukraine. Uh, it was introduced to the U.S., of course, by the, the wave of Jewish immigration from that area around uh, the late 1900s. It has pretty much stayed true, true to its original version, uh, but, you know, with different variations of spices and so on. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, it, it did originate, obviously, in, um, in uh, this region of the world, in Central and Southeastern Europe. Okay, so we told the folks 196flavors.com has 1,100 recipes. The reason that it is named 196 Flavors because you have a recipe from every country in the world. This is a perfect website for the home cook. Maybe you want to experiment. In my household growing up, we had schnitzel, uh, we had spaghetti, and we had, you know what I mean, we had uh, a lot of different dishes, beef stroganoff, in just one week's time. You know what I mean? So a lot of people like to uh, go to different countries and get inspired with the cuisine. In closing, Mike, give us, uh, take as long as you want, give us a summary of 100, what do you want the listeners to know about 196flavors.com? Flavors.com is the go-to online website to get authentic and traditional representations of the recipes of every single country in the world. Um, it is the authority on the web with, uh, provided by experts 
of chefs and cookbook authors and local authorities that provide the the, uh, the authority and the credibility behind the research on our website. So now you have one place to get not only the recipe of those um, typical and traditional dishes, but you also learn about the history behind those recipes so that you can really better understand not only the cuisine, but the culture of the different countries that we virtually travel. This website is actually available in English, French, and Spanish. Um, so we cater to a very broad audience. And um, we, um, like I said, we work with a, a team of contributors, but also chefs and experts from uh, every country uh, we're trying to build, we're actually trying currently to build, build out that team so that we do have the validation of those experts. Some of them actually um, uh, Michelin star chefs in their respective countries. We actually are currently working with uh, a Michelin star chef in Sweden. Uh, we have one for, from Portugal. So we have more and more traction uh, from the, the global uh, community of chefs and experts that are really behind this project to, to become the authority on the web. And uh, we are listened to all over the world. We've been in over 70 countries. So if I'm a chef in another country around the world or the United States, how can I get in contact you to help share some recipes? Oh, that would be great, actually. Uh, we are, currently, we only have about 30 chefs, so we have ways to go to cover the 190 countries, so we are missing you know, about 160 chefs from those different countries. So if you are a chef specialized in a specific cuisine who is coming from that country or who is really specialized in, uh, in a specific cuisine, we would love to hear from you so you can easily find us uh, and contact us via our website or our different social channels. Our um, um, handle is 196flavors in, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Pinterest. And I want to touch on, before we go, I want to touch on your amazing Facebook page. It's a group. Talk about the group. Talk about the community you have built on Facebook. Yeah, actually. So, you know, we are present on all these social channels, but our goal is really to create some kind of a community of passionate and curious foodies like us um, who can really collaborate, who can engage, and really learn from each other. So this Facebook group, um, which you can also very easily find, it's the World Cuisine Community by 190 Flavors, um, today has about 3,000 members, and we do also encourage experts, we actually do ask people to identify themselves as experts when they join the group. Some of them are not, you know, not everybody is an expert, uh, but when they are, when they do have some kind of expertise, we encourage them to share it with us so that whenever we do have questions about specific cuisines, we know who to turn to to get the uh, appropriate answers. So it's a vibrant community. We've, uh, we created it about uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, it's really growing pretty rapidly that's fantastic and uh, let's talk about the success of the website because if i'm a chef in sweden and i want to participate in your website i would need to know a little bit of the figures i believe you had said that you have 15 million page views yeah so this year um in 2020 we are going to surpass 15 million page views um for the for the for the year we are consistently over 1.2 million per um per month right now 
the interesting thing is during COVID, at the beginning of COVID especially, um, when everybody was in lockdown, uh, we had our peak of traffic. I think we reached like 2.2 or 2.3 million in Israel uh, because obviously everybody was home cooking and baking. Um, but yeah, we are, we are growing very rapidly. And, um, and you know, and talking, you know, it is, it has become a business. So obviously, you know, we, we now make money uh, thanks to the traffic. Uh, but we also started selling ebooks on the uh, on the website. So for people who are looking for an easy to read format capturing the essence of specific regions, uh, you can actually buy our ebooks in a digital format, and um, and you have access to typically between. 80 and 100 recipes for each region. Uh, so far, we have published four books this year, uh, Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. And we are currently working on our fifth ebook, um, which is going to be South America. And that is important information to know, because if I'm a, a chef in India or Sweden, anywhere in the world, it would be a good publicity move for me to, uh, you know, go on your website and participate, correct? Absolutely, because what we do is we don't, we don't ask our, our chefs and experts to contribute their content. The only thing we ask them to do is to review our content and to validate it. And very rarely they're going to say, oh, you know, what, this is not exactly correct or so on. I mean, they, they do edit sometimes, but we, we spend enough time researching about the topic that. Typically, our, our content is 99% accurate. So they do validate it, and what we do is every time the recipe or article is validated by one of our chefs, we um, mention it at the end of the article with a link to their website or to the restaurant. So obviously, they have the visibility um, in return. So we ask them to review our, our content, but in return, we provide them with the visibility, the global visibility, and we really put them on the map. Uh, from a preliminary perspective. And with a website getting that kind of traffic, that publicity is is so valuable. You know what I mean? Uh, because you're getting, uh, very rarely do you see a website with a million hits uh, a month. Uh, now you're going to do 15 million this year. That is some incredible publicity. Yeah, we are, I, I mean, depending on the sources, we are number, I think, 800 uh, um website globally when in the food category wow. so that is impressive well mike i want to thank you for joining us today and this has been a special edition of learn about world cuisine in in a uh, partnership with 196 flavors.com thank you so much mike hold on the phone thanks mike thank and we will see you next week